This is Caught in the Act with Tim Clark. Um, Welcome back. On 15th of February 2021, Network 10's flagship news show, The Project, began their episode like this. Welcome back to this special edition of The Project. Tonight, claims of rape, roadblocks to a police investigation and a young woman forced to choose between her career and the pursuit of justice. And it all happened right in the heart of our democracy. The presenter of the show that night was Lisa Wilkinson. The young woman making the shocking allegation that she had been raped inside Parliament House in Canberra was Brittany Higgins. And her alleged rapist was not named. But according to him and Latley, his high-powered and highly paid legal team, anyone who knew him or Miss Higgins would have put the clues together in mere minutes and come up with his name, Bruce Lehrman. Those allegations sent shockwaves through the Canberra bubble, which quickly rippled across Australia. The Me Too movement in this country had one of its most significant moments. And the allegations, as they were, set off a chain of events which have had a seismic impact at the highest levels of politics, the Liberal Party and the law in Australia ever since. The subsequent criminal prosecution of Mr Lerman went ahead in Canberra, but then fell over in spectacular fashion last year. The prosecutor in the case declined to retry Mr Lerman and then lost his own job over his conduct. And now it is Mr Lerman making the allegations that Network 10 and Lisa Wilkinson defamed him in the most serious of ways. That matter went on trial in Sydney's federal court this week and will be heard for weeks to come and the first few days have already produced some bombshell moments. And so, to help me walk the line in the case of Bruce Lehrman versus Network 10 Proprietary Limited and Lisa Wilkinson, is specialist defamation and media lawyer Nick Stagg, co-founder and principal of the law firm Steedman Stagg. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Yeah, thanks very much, Tim. G'day, and um, I'll just say... uh, up front, it's a real pleasure to be joining who I regard as one of Australia's sort of preeminent and best respected court and legal affairs journos. So I'm um, happy to be here. Thanks, mate. So, as defamation trial goes, uh, this one is about as, as high profile as they get. Yeah, Tim, look, it's, it sure has attracted uh, media attention online, attention. Uh, clearly, as, as a result of the, the incredible focus and attention the uh, criminal trial received and the lead-up to that that matter and, of course, the political machinations and the reporting on on that. There is no doubt about that. But, but of course, you know, we've had a number of, as you described, high-profile defamation trials in recent times. The uh, Ben Robert Smith trial, defamation trial, of course, was not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Heston Russell only within the last little bit. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Rush, Rebel Wilson, and, of course, more likely, uh, the... Uh, Mr. Lloyd Rainey's had a uh, successful defamation trial against the, the state. So there's been a, there's been a number of them lately. Mm. And this one, 
has already been referred to this week as a de facto rape trial because a lot of the allegations are similar to the criminal proceedings and at the heart of it all is the truth about an alleged sex assault. Would you would you go along with that um, labelling? Well, it's, it's, it, it's, it certainly uh, it is one element of the case, that's for sure. Of course, there are a number of other, other key issues that the uh, trial judge is going to need to deal with uh, you know, coming to determination, of course, one of those is around the question of whether or not Mr. Lehrman was in fact identified by the by the publication. Uh, my understanding too is that there are qualified privilege defences that have that are at play uh, or in play, and there could be evidence and questions that need to be determined in relation to that d- defence. But yes, the, the, in relation to the the truth defence that I understand has been pleaded on the Ken Wilkinson side. Uh, yes, uh, that question will need to be determined. Um, the, the question of the substantial truth about the allegation that Mr. Lehman sues on, which is that the story suggested that uh, uh, there was an alleged sex, affo- sex assault um, uh, in play. Mm-hmm. So, indeed. So, while this week's trial is about a TV show in 2021, that TV show centred on a boozy night attended by a group of political staffers in Canberra in March 2019. That group included members of the staff of Linda Reynolds, the Liberal Senator from Western Australia who had just taken over the portfolio of defence industry. That had led to some bloodletting in her office, but two of those to survive were Bruce Lerman, a policy advisor, and Brittany Higgins, who was set to be involved in the liaison between the Senator and the media. On that night, the group first attended a bar called The Dock before moving to another place called 88 MPH. And then, what is unchallenged is that after that, at around 1.40am, Mr Lerman and Miss Higgins arrived together back at Parliament House. Their arrival and entry is caught on CCTV. You can see Mr Lerman jacketless, you can see Miss Higgins in her distinctive white dress go through the body scanner once and then again after being told to take her shoes off. The security cameras catch them walking to their boss's office. And what happens then, behind that office door, over the next hour or so, was and still is a major Australian political and legal scandal. What Miss Higgins says happened was aired on the project on February 15, 2021. The first thing that sort of awoke me was I was in a pain. My leg was kind of being crushed. The senior staff was on top of me. He was clearly almost finished. Um, Sorry, was there sexual intercourse going on? Yeah, I, was, I, was, I woke up mid-rape, essentially. Um, I, I don't know why. I knew he was almost finished, but I, I felt like it had been going on for a while or that he was almost done. He was sweaty. I couldn't get him off of me. At this point, I started crying. What did you say to him? I told him to stop. Did he? No. How many times would you estimate you said to him to stop? I felt like it was like on a loop endlessly. Um, at least half a dozen. I was crying the whole way through it. And he didn't speak to me the entire time. I just remember him eventually 
he stopped and he got up and he looked at me and I kind of looked at him and I couldn't get up and then he left. Nick, for a journalist, that is gold star, heaven sent, and like once in a career type of content. But for a media lawyer like yourself, uh, it would a minefield, I would imagine. Um, Tim, look, you know, as you know, I once a long time ago was a, was a journalist, uh, you know, for, for three years before starting law. So, now I understand the the importance, and I'm speaking generally here of. The, the importance of, of getting the story out. Um, and indeed, you know, my, my role, uh, as I've always seen it, is, is one to advise on, you know, I give advice and, and the editors and uh, so forth will make the calls based on the advice and, and risk assessments. Mm-hmm. Um, but my role is not to, you know, stop publication and things, but rather to advise on perhaps op- optimal ways or better ways of sending the message, of giving the message that in the public interest, et cetera, needs to be gotten out there, but with reduction of risk. Mm. I mean, people ask me what I do for a living, and I tell them not really facetiously that I deal in pessimism. I mean, that's what, <laughs> that's what, that's what litigation lawyers do. I mean, we, we, we've got our eye focused on risk and how best to avoid it. So, uh, you know, these, these things are always about assessing those, uh, those issues and, and, and trying to plot a way through it, the hand in glove with editorial staff, journos, reporters, etc. So, and, and you know, one's got to remember the, the people involved, uh, you know, in, in this in this matter, the media. They're very experienced people. The lawyers very experienced. Uh, you know, calculated decisions have been made based on legal advice. I, I can only but assume. Mm. And uh, Ted and and Elisa Wilkinson have got their views, and of course, are defending. So. Uh, I mean, all will be revealed in due course. Obviously, as the tri- this trial runs its course, and we, we have a decision, and any other appeal proceedings or what have you that may follow. So, uh, n- no, it's nightmarish. Not, I don't know if I'd give it that description, but it's you know, it's the cut and thrust, and of course, a very important story. Can I also just add, Tim? I've seen a few comment commentators make the point, and it's an important point to make. But the the Criminal trial that Mr. Lehrman went through, which of course was, uh, uh, was was aborted at the end of the day, and, and the retrial, of course, didn't didn't proceed. Mm. Um, very unusual proceedings in the sense that complainants in in sexual offence matters are not normally identified. Yep. The entire background into what we're actually dealing with uh, here in, in the in the defamation trial is a very unusual circumstance where, in relation to the criminal matter, the, the complainant was identified uh, by, by name and, and, and picture. It does, it's an important point to note, and it has, in, you know, in my view, uh, you know, contributed, I think, to the heightened focus and, and, and awareness about this, this, this case. But it, it's, it's highly unusual. Mm. Because when that interview went to air, Mr Lehrman was not facing any criminal charges at all. So mm. Ten and um, Lisa Wilkinson were able to name her, obviously with her permission, um, because she wasn't under um, any 
um, any, well, they weren't under any restriction under the law because, mm. strictly speaking, um, she was just making an allegation, which, as you say, is highly unusual for someone to do a media interview before anyone's been even, even been charged. But from a, mm. from, a, from a media law point of view and from ten's net, 10 Network's point of view, that, that took away one of, one of the potential um, hurdles in this story because they didn't have to go to a court and apply or to have any sort of suppression order lifted or mm. um, to, um, you know, to put on evidence that the, the, the complainant in this case was happy for her to, herself to be identified. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and when when contentious stories like this come up, and you know we've we've had a few over the, over the years, m- m- myself and yourself, I, I get asked a lot. Oh, do you argue with the lawyers? And, and I say no. It's not it's not arguments. You know, at one level, it's a negotiation, and at the end of the day, your job is is, is, is as you say, to assess the risk of a story and then give that advice to the editor of the paper that makes the ultimate decision whether to publish or not. It's absolutely right, Tim. As I, as I said uh, earlier, uh, you know, I, I see my role as one. I'm, I'm not a roadblocker. That's not, that's not the that's not the role, in my view, of the media lawyer. It's it is to get the story out there, but to get the story out there in a way that is 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 as safe as it can be, and that's that, that's in relation to you know, all state stakeholders. And you know, one's always got to be guided at the end of the day by the rule of law, and and th- those laws and principles are well known, and one. That's where the, uh, I guess, the experience and the, you know, the expertise come. It's it's plotting a course through all of that, in order to get these very very important public interest uh, stories out there. But in a, in a way, as I say, it's as safe as possible. So yes, um, the there are from time to time, you know, hard dis- hard discussion. It's not, perhaps not the right word, but you know, robust discussion in 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 the, in the way of, of getting to that end, end result. And look, you know, as I said, uh, although only uh, some some baby steps from on my part, uh, having been a, a journalist, I understand that the story is that it's like a it's like a journalist child, right? I mean, it's it's something that's not to be you know interfered with. I mean, I, I completely understand that. So uh, you know, one starts from that premise, and it's just, so it's the the gentle guiding hand, and it's very much, I think, uh, and. As you, as you know, with the airing directions and with doing things, it's, it, it's, it's teamwork. Yeah. It's teamwork, and we're all trying to get to an end goal, uh, uh, you know, to win grand finals in uh, you know in the most efficient, effective way without too many injuries along the way. That's what it's all about. Yeah. And would you agree, uh, in, in this space, Australia has got some of the sort of strongest or strictest or defamation laws in, in sort of in the English-speaking countries? Well, I mean, the... the Street talk always is the cliche is, isn't it, that uh, that Sydney is viewed as the defamation capital of the world? <laughs> um, uh, look, it's it, uh, there, there. It's it is an environmental landscape, a landscape in Australia where uh, you know, sort of my thirty years of, of of doing what I do, there has been an escalation, I think, in the in the number of defamation matters that come along and hit the desk, and but you know, perhaps surprisingly to. To those who are listening in, these sort of matters that we're talking about today that hit the newspapers, they're the big ones, and, of course, they get the publicity. But they're just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, most of the matters that are before the courts or trying to be resolved in uh, off to the sidelines, as it were, they're between common folk, uh, you know, next-door neighbours, uh, sporting clubs, uh, 
people at PNCs around at schools, etc. I mean, these defamation disputes are common. People protect their reputations. Uh, uh, they they want to protect their reputation. The reputation is all important. And I think the the obvious introduction of social media and the the ability now for people to be able to publish and publish widely, uh, doing it on the basis that they think they're anonymous, that is that has escalated, I think, and fuelled uh, the, you know, the 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 increase that certainly I have seen in my experience in the uh, in the number of defamation matters that that, that, that come across the desk. Mm. Well, the fallout from this particular story was a predictable firestorm. The Morrison government was, at the time, also facing accusations of an old boys club, old school tie attitudes, and the elevation of Grace Tame to Australian of the Year had already placed the treatment of sexual abuse survivors firmly in the spotlight. And now, here was a young woman alleging rape at the very heart of Australia's democracy. The project had not named Bruce Lehrman, and they now use that as one of their defences against defamation. But he claims his identity would have been clear and obvious to many of those who knew him and had worked with him. Nick, this question of whether Mr Lehrman was able to be identified by what the project had published is shaping to be a a really key one. So talk us through the law there and and what is he going to have to prove? Yeah, so Tim, um, uh, plaintiff in a defamation claim uh, is three. There's three elements, three things they need to focus on to, to get up a claim. One that something's been published about them, um, that there was in fact publication, uh, and that what was published <coughs> uh, defamed them. The that that first point that w- what was published was about them is, is this identification point that you're talking about. And mm. so it's a, it's, it, is, it is a central element that needs to be proved. Uh, what I apprehend will be done, what's usually done, are, are witnesses put in the witness box who will give their evidence as to having uh, seen, watched the the, um, the story the pro- on, on the project. And, and from the series of facts... Uh, that they, because of special knowledge that they have about um, Mr. Lehrman, that they were able to deduce that <coughs> the subject focus of the st- of the story was 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 him. So, as I understand it, there were, and this is usually the the case where identification of the plaintiff is an issue. The various witnesses will have to give uh, evidence. We'll get into the witness box and give that sort of evidence that they understood that this story was referring to and was about uh, Mr. Lehrman. So I, I think uh, that those witnesses will be will becoming family, friends, mm-hmm. uh, work colleagues to give that to give that sort of uh, that sort of evidence. So, at the end of the day, the the, the the question of identification may be one that might sound in the if uh, Mr. Lemon wins the wins this trial, it, it may have an impact on damages. That is to say, that it's, it's only to those people who watch the <clears throat> the show and who, who identified him. Uh, it's, the assessment is made in relation to that pool of people as opposed to uh, 
a story which expressly names someone, in which case the person has been expressly named, so the damages are broader. So it may it may have a, an impact sound in damages. We'll wait and see. Mm. And the other two elements there that you mentioned, the fact that it was published, I don't think that's going to be an issue because we've just heard two mm-hmm. clips from the publication, and the fact that it was um, defamatory of him. I mean, obviously accusing a man of raping a young staffer in an office in, in Parliament House. I mean, you, you, you can't really get more serious allegations than that, apart from maybe what no, Mr Rainey that, that was accused of. That's right, and it comes back to our discussion earlier that, of course, um, Lisa Wilkinson and 10 are running truth defences in relation to the defamatory meaning. I'll be able to establish the, the, the truth of that. Again, that's, that's what this uh, central feature of this trial, of course, mm. uh, and what the trial judge is going to have to get to the bottom of uh, based on all the evidence that is on her hands. Uh, that is you know, very much... You know, a, a feature of the case. So that's where the clashes that were of the uh, the allegation counter allegations come into play. Yeah, and that defence of truth and the fact that a, a judge in a defamation trial is basically going to have to weigh up a he said she said scenario about a sexual assault and decide um, on on not on the level of criminality but on the level of likelihood that this this happened. I mean, that's that that's pretty rare for for someone like justice michael lee to have to uh, to have to wrap his head around oh, it was experienced judge uh self-evidently that presided of course most recently uh over the uh the histon russell trial i believe um look you, you don't know there matters that not only defamation ones but uh, you know commercial matters etc they do boil down to a contest of uh, you know, evidence is between what one person has to say about an event or fact or matter or, or, or something that's in that's that is contentious and a, a counter competing allegations, and that's the that's the that is the mission and task, uh, you know, of the trier of fact, the trial judge in this case, to get to the bottom of that. So uh, that's what they're to do, and they'll take all the evidence on board and weigh it up, and at the end of the day, make a determination. You know, in relation to that, in relation to that question, yeah. and I am right in that, aren't I, Nick? That that in this case, um, Justice Michael Lee won't have to be um, convinced beyond a reasonable doubt, as a jury would be, but as as close to that as he can possibly get, I would imagine. Yes, correct. So that we're at the uh, civil standard. So it's the assessments that are made in relation to the evidence is uh, assessed at the balance of probability. So it is a it is a lower threshold than than the beyond reasonable doubt uh, uh, threshold or test in, in in criminal matters. And another key point to um, Bruce Lerman's argument this week is that he was also not given a chance to respond to the allegations that the project were going to air. He says emails that he was sent weren't seen because they were sent to a sort of hotmail account that he really used and phone numbers that he was contacted on were not his anymore. So what's the significance of that? As I, as I said at the outset, my understanding is that uh, qualified uh, privilege defences are at play in, in, this, in this trial, in this case. Uh, that means that the, the focus in relation to those defences is the conduct of the, the, the media and whether or not the, uh, the media's approach and the process and the operations that, that were deployed in putting this, this story together uh, and at the time of the broadcast, etc., were were reasonable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, from that perspective, 
those defences are very much focused on what the on the media side of the ledger, how they acted and behaved, and what's in relation to that question. These sorts of uh, issues, questions like uh, the opportunities given to the the, the the plaintiff to respond to claims, etc., how that process uh, unfolded. Mm. Uh, that, those sorts of things very much the, the focus underpins the, the question of whether those sort of qualified privilege defences will, will stick or not. Mm-hmm. So those matters uh, will be a central feature of that aspect of the of the case when it uh, swings to Channel Ten and Lisa Wilkinson sides to uh, uh, to, to get their defences out and up. Mm. So, Mr. Lehrman claims that hour of television destroyed his life and almost ended it. In his affidavit in the trial this week, which was released by the court, he said he immediately contemplated suicide over what was being said about him. He was swiftly admitted into a psychiatric hospital for weeks and says his life has not been the same since. He's removed from the job he was doing then, dumped by old friends, ostracised by some family. And from the airing of that show, it took police months to investigate amid a tempest of publicity which continued to swirl. In the meantime, some of the fringe elements of the internet news media printed his name and his picture. And in August 2021, he was charged with rape. And through that charge, more widely identified as the alleged Parliament House rapist. That trial was due to start on June 27 last year. But in the meantime, Lisa Wilkinson, the presenter of the project, had been nominated for a Logie for that interview. On June 19, 2022, eight days before that trial was due to begin, Ms Wilkinson won that Logie and proceeded to make a speech she had written herself. As Brittany warned me before we went to air, her story would be seen by many of the most powerful people in this country, not as a human problem, but as a political problem. Brittany Higgins was a political problem. And governments tend to like political problems to go away. But Brittany never did. And the truth is, this honour belongs to Brittany. It belongs It belongs to a 26-year-old woman's unwavering courage. It belongs to a woman who said enough. It belongs to a woman who inspired more than 100,000 similarly pissed off, exhausted, fierce women and men to take to the streets right across this country to roar in numbers too big to ignore. Nick, if an experienced journalist like Lisa Wilkinson came to you with this speech a few days before the alleged rape she was referencing was due to go before a jury, what would your advice be? Low risk, no change? (laughs) Uh, Tim, look, no no doubt that that there would have been um, very considered... Uh, observations and considerations made about in, in, in relation to this, uh, you know, it's 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 difficult to say without being you know to put this to put oneself in in the shoes of a factual situation which you're not entirely uh, 
you know, being remote and satellite to it all, uh, you know, across. But suffice to say that, uh, you know, one can only but assume that 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 it was a matter where the advice was, uh, and no doubt was was taken, uh, careful consideration given to it all. And, and indeed, this likely to be, I, I would think, uh, you know, a, a matter that, that will find its way one, one way or another, perhaps into the into the, this current trial before his honour Justice Lee mm. uh, and we'll, we'll get more visibility on it but mm. you know as again as I say uh, you know from my own perspective uh, that's what we media defamation lawyers get paid to do is <laughs> to guide through and make the assessments and give the advice but I keep coming back to the point that's all that's what we do that ultimately we, we assist in the decision making um, by providing that advice but the decisions are ultimately taken by by, by Publish and broadcast as it should be, yeah. um, and we just have been a part of that uh, the, that process that uh, uh, you know in, ends up in a publication or, or, or broadcast. Well, the impact of that speech was that the Chief Justice of the ACT, Lucy McCallum, said that she was going to have to delay the trial, regrettably and with gritted teeth. She said, "The prejudice." of such representations so widely reported, so close to the date of impanelment of the jury cannot be overstated, she said. The recent publicity does, in my view, change the landscape because of its immediacy, its intensity and its capacity to obliterate the important distinction between an allegation that remains untested at law and one that has been accepted by a jury giving a true verdict. And since then, Mr Lehrman's lawyer, Stephen Wybrow, has openly admitted that if not for that a delay, he believes that his client may well have been found criminally guilty. We made an application for a temporary stay. The, it wasn't fair, on top of everything else, for Bruce to have to face a jury a week after. On one interpretation, there were public statements again, basically saying Miss Higgins is a true victim of a true crime and the trial is just a um, formality. So we said we needed to have some time, we needed to stay in order to put some distance from that speech in the minds of any potential jurors. And the Chief Justice agreed and the trial was put off for three months. If it wasn't for Miss Wilkinson's speech, we would have gone into that trial uh, without so much material that we subsequently came into possession of, either through chasing up disclosure or chasing up subpoenas, that was integral to properly understanding and challenging the complainant's allegations. So, Nick, explain quickly what, what time to trial is and what, what, what's the importance of it, because it's, it's one of the phrases that is, uh, we often use in our conversations together when, you, when you're looking at um, some of my stories and, and certainly other lawyers that we, that we deal with at Seven West. Yeah, Tim, the, the, the time to trial element is one that's important in the, the question of, a, of the contempt land. Uh, the general uh, theory is that the longer ago a story was published uh, or broadcast, the less likelihood it is to have an impact on potential jurors in terms of their ability, capacity to, to, to recollect better. Uh, jurors who come along to uh, 
do what they have to do in the context of the trial, have to come along and make the decision based on the evidence that they hear in court, not what they've read or seen in newspapers or on the television. Uh, and the same applies in relation to witnesses. They're expected to come along and be able to give their evidence sort of free from contamination, mm. uh, as it were, by um, stories that are broadcast or, or published. So the theory is that the further away a trial is, then the, the likelihood of those sorts of impacts uh, on, on, on jurors and or witnesses uh, in a trial is, uh, have, have less of a, are less likely to impact. Mm. So the further a trial away is, the, the, the general rule is the more latitude, if I can use that that word, or, word, or, or, or perhaps licence uh, to, to report on on matters that are going to be before the the court is is there and available. And when that jury did finally convene, they heard evidence for two weeks. As foreshadowed by the Chief Justice, the central issue was the credibility of the complainant and whether her allegation of sexual assault can be believed. That jury then retired to consider a verdict on October 19 last year. Eight days later, they had still not reached that verdict. And ultimately, they never would. After it emerged that one juror had sought out and then brought into court a research paper on sexual assault, contrary to the judge telling them at least 17 times that they shouldn't conduct outside research. Ultimately, that criminal prosecution was abandoned altogether after ACT DPP Shane Drumgold declined to go ahead with another trial because of fears of a Miss Higgins' mental health and a subsequent public inquiry into the prosecutions was heavily critical of the way police and prosecutors had interacted, eventually leading to Mr Drumgold being drummed out of his job. He has subsequently launched legal action against those findings. More firestorms, more recriminations, and amid it all, Miss Higgins was understandably distraught. I was required to tell the truth under oath for over a week on the witness stand and was cross-examined at length. He was afforded the choice of staying silent in court, head down in a notebook, completely detached. He never faced one question in court about his story and the criminal charges. I was required to surrender my telephones, my passwords, messages, photos, and my data to him. He was not required to produce his telephone, his passwords, messages, photos, or his data. My life has been publicly scrutinized, open for the world to see. His was not. You can hear the cameras clicking away there. The media interest was intense, as it was this week. In Sydney's federal court, before Justice Michael Lee, the judge, incidentally, who sat on the defamation rumble between Clive Palmer and Mark McGowan. This week, Mr Learman brought on his defamation complaint, which saw him take an oath and swear to tell the truth about what happened that night in Parliament House. As Brittany Higgins said, he didn't give evidence, he didn't have to give evidence in the criminal trial, but this trial is his trial, and so he was the first and probably star witness. 
His lawyer said he wants vindication. And Mr. Lehrman gave his version of events under oath, that he never sexually assaulted Miss Higgins, that he didn't even speak to her or see her after they entered that office together. Emails were sent between them with no issue in the days after, he said. And after getting there, he has also had to get through cross-examination, which was going on and is going on as we speak this morning. And it's already seen him have to backtrack on some of his previous answers given to the AFP, given to an interview with the Seven Network and given in court this week. Nick, even though the stakes are not criminally high, that questioning uh, under cross-examination would still be daunting and is going to be potentially pivotal in the uh, in the case that Justice Michael Lee has to decide on. Uh, look, it, it, indeed, Tim. I mean, uh, the, the witness box... Uh, it, 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 Again, in my experience in talking to people who've given evidence, I've given evidence. It's it's it is not uh, it's not the, it's not really the place you want to be. But you know, Mr. Lemon has obviously considered very carefully his position, and uh, as you say, uh, his lawyer has said that he wants vindication. Uh, so he hasn't taken the decision quite clearly uh, lightly. Uh, it, look, at the end of the day, the the, the only uh, you know advice you give to People have to get into a witness box. You answer the questions. You answer the questions truthfully mm. and to the best of your you know, ability, but um, being honest and, and, and truthful. I mean, that's the guiding light. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's, an, it's a, it's a fishbowl environment, obviously. I mean, this trial, again, it's a, as I understand it, it's being uh, streamed mm-hmm. live on a YouTube channel. So the eyes are on this trial and witness, witnesses who are given evidence in the witness box as it's happening. But, uh, as I say, um, the, the mission of someone who gets in the witness box is, is uh, to, to put everything else aside and listen carefully to what's being put and to answer the question, only the question, and to do it truthfully. Mm. And, look, you know, this, this trial and what's happened before it, uh, it's been daunting for a lot of key players, of course, as we know, in, in, uh, across both the, the criminal sphere and, and, and now in the civil, civil sphere with this civil sphere with this defamation trial, in, this, in the sense that the uh, you know the unprecedented media reporting, uh, the, the proverbial discussions around barbecues and millions of many uh, backyards around the, the, the country. I mean, the people involved in matters, the lawyers, the judges, the Witnesses, etc., uh, you know, been scrutinised wrongly, rightly, uphill, down dale in in that sort of environment. Mm. Uh, so, you know, what's the, the what's the lesser of the two evils? I, I mean, I just <laughs> I, I, I don't I, I don't know. But as daunting as it is uh, to to get in a witness box, all those other things have been happening around it. To many, it's unfortunate. It's side play of the uh, big heavy focus. Um, media trials, etc. Um, it's the Western democratic sort of system. It's what we have, and uh, you know, sometimes people get hurt along along the way. But um, yes, it's it'd be difficult and trying. 
particularly, I would say, given the calibre of lawyer that Network 10 have employed. So 10's barrister is a man called Dr Matt Collins KC, and he literally, literally wrote the book on defamation law, Collins on Defamation, which is published by the Oxford University Press. And Sue Chrysanthu has been separately hired by Lisa Wilkinson, and she's previously represented Christian Porter and Geoffrey Rush, amongst others. So, Nick, uh, you've been around the traps. Have you come up against those two? And if not, would you fancy going up against those two? Look, I mean, let's not forget, of course, uh, on um, Mr. Lehrman's side with Matthew Richardson. Well, that, that is and, true. And, He's no slouch and, either. And indeed, uh, Stephen Wybrow, I see, I understand, uh, uh, also in, in, involved and uh, will be uh, will be front and centre too. I mean, there's no doubt they are. These people are very good at their craft. Uh, I have had some dealings with with some of them. Uh, they're entertaining people, smart people. They, they, as I say, they're, they're very good at their craft. Is a, don't forget, there's a very formidable bunch of uh, of uh, lawyers on this side of the rabbit proof fence too. Of course. Oh yes. Uh, um, so we sort of we're blessed with those as well. But yeah, look, at the end of the day, they're there to, to do their job and to do it well. Uh, and it's the as I, as I said before, it's the mission of witnesses simply to to, to not be distracted by any of that and simply listen to the questions and answer truthfully and 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 honestly but yeah look they're high profile figures uh uh and uh, they're good at what they do there's mm. no doubt about that now, another action by Mr Lehrman against the ABC was settled before a ball was bowled this week. The terms of that settlement we are yet to learn. But it was also revealed that uh, Mr Lehrman had also offered to settle against 10 almost a year ago for uh, damages of $235,000 and an apology. But... 10 declined and then apparently doubled down. And we learned this week they've even hired a lip-reading expert to find out what was said between Mr Lehrman and Miss Higgins in the bar before their trip to Parliament. Nick, that offer to settle, um, that might become significant later on if things um, go well for Mr Lehrman. Yes, it has the the potential, Tim. The system, that's the right word, of, of uh, offers being made to settle and whether or not they're they're accepted and the reasonableness of conduct and people uh, re- rejecting settlement offers may come back uh, be relevant in relation to the question of what damages are ultimately awarded. I mean, these are very these are very sophisticated, tricky, difficult questions. Mm. Uh, because there's a lot of crystal ball gazing that, that must go on when uh, you know, offers come in, and, and uh, maybe that's that's underplaying it a little. There's a lot of heavy consideration that has to go into the, the into, into these offers and when they're made, and at the time and when they're made, and there's the, the test of the reasonableness of a rejection of an offer, etc. Uh, that is the, something the courts grapple with. It's a tr- it is a very tricky, tricky, difficult question. So yes, look, it may come to have some sort of impact at the end of the day, of course, depending on who wins, who loses, and by what amount and mm. how much. And on the flip side, um, $235,000 um, in the context of other awards in some of the other cases that you mentioned at the top um, is, is not at the at the top end. But from my reading of it, it was that apology that, that 
Mr. Lehrman was and his lawyers were demanding. I think that that I'm not sure, I don't know, of course, but um, that might be the one that ten bulked at rather than than them paying the money and. The, the damages in these type of cases, there is no tariff. And because I believe he's going for aggravated damages, there's also no cap on those, are there? It, it's, it's right. So there's, as expression goes, Tim, you know, the da- damages are at large. And the, 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 hmm. the trial judge, at the end of the day, if, uh, if he was to find in favour of, of Mr Lehman and, and, in, and in making an, an, an award of damages, it will assess a, a, a number of different things. And the, every case, Turns, will turn on its own, uh, its own factual circumstances, and, and you know what happened in a particular matter, and the, the circumstances of the particular publication. So, uh, whilst other cases that have come before and awards that have been made, uh, you know, maybe of some guidance, perhaps they, they, it's it's an imprecise science, mm. uh, and the, the indeed. The, the very conduct of the, the, the trial, for example, um, the, the way defendants go about the, the conduct of the defence of a matter of action is an element that, that may factor into the, an award of damages if the plaintiff does succeed. So they, these are difficult exercises to be able to, to predict with any precision, which uh, comes back to the point I was making about the difficulty in, in assessing uh, offers, counter offers made, in, particularly early in the piece in, in, in matters, as to how, you know, how reasonable they are at the end of the day, because the way these matters play out and the way they twist and turn makes it very difficult uh, to, to be able to predict, as I say, with any real uh, science and, and precision as to uh, how a judge at the end of the day might, might make an award. And look, this is this is probably an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. From what you've seen and heard so far this week, how do you think Mr. Lehman's claim is is tracking? Tim, you've you allow me the indulgence of the, the very important story of the, the the client who said to his lawyer, "If I uh, ask you two two questions and uh, get advice on those two questions, will you cap your fee at five hundred dollars?" And the lawyer said, "Well, of course. What's your second question?" Um, look. <laughs> It's too early to tell. Uh, uh, way too early to tell. Um, this trial, I think, is set down for four weeks. Yeah. It will it will twist and turn, no doubt. Uh, we'll 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 be keeping an avid, avid eye on the reporting, and you'll be no doubt watching it on YouTube, etc. Uh, and I, I dare say the legal teams will. <laughs> there'll be days when they thought they had a good day. There'll be days when they've considered that it hasn't gone so well. That's the cut and thrust of uh, these sorts of trials. Uh, it'll ebb and flow way too difficult at, at this very early stage to be able to to have this, be able to say anything meaningful about how it's going at present. All right. I'll let you get away with that one for now. <laughs> um, the trial, as Nick said, is, is due to run until late December. And witnesses yet to come include Miss um, Wilkinson, who has uh, attended court in various shades of pastel this week. Her producer, uh, the former chief of staff for Linda Reynolds, a lady called Fiona Brown, and potentially Miss Higgins herself. And, of course, Mr Lehrman has another case pending in another state. He has separately been accused of raping another woman twice in Toowoomba in Queensland in October 2021. That was just two months after he was formally named as Miss Higgins's alleged attacker. And he was only able 
to be named in that latter case after a change in the law in Queensland and then a ruling by a magistrate and a judge. Nick, thanks for joining us on Court in the Act this week. Mate, I've been threatening to get you on for uh, <laughs> since episode one, so thankfully we've ticked that off. And um, yeah. as I said, we're going to check back when we have a decision on this matter so you can pick through what happened and uh, point out everything I've inevitably missed. Good on you, Tim. Thanks very much, and uh, thanks for being uh, for being ever so gentle with me. Yes. Thanks, thanks again. Ciao. And thank you for joining us again on Court in the Act. If you have any questions or cases you want explored, then please email, email us at courtintheact at wanews.com.au. And remember, if you want to know what's going on in court, don't get caught short. Get Court in the Act instead. See you next time. <laughs>